Okay, guys, let's come back together again. Hope you enjoyed your break. Um, here's what we're going to do. So I, I, have, I have two more themes that I want to get through. Uh, one, one is the theme of kingdom, and the other is the theme of life and death, or life, death, and resurrection. I, I just don't think we're going to have time to do kingdom. We may come back to it later if we can get through the material, but I want to hit life and death. Um, because we're going to hit kingdom themes when we go through the different covenants. Uh, but this will be our final theme that we work through the Bible through. Then we're going to do a, a, a kind of an in-depth analysis of the different biblical covenants, which I think is probably the most important thing for understanding how the Bible fits together. All this is trying to do is model for you different ways to do biblical theology so that you can go and do it yourself. But I want to do life and death because I think life and death uh, is a very practical, just in the same way marriage is practical, life and death is very practical in actual ministry to understand a biblical theology of life and death. Um, so let's go ahead and start with the garden, right? So where we should start with a biblical theology. So remember we talked about in, in our hermeneutics class, the Bible's going to answer any questions we ask of it. The key is to ask the right questions, right? So it's funny, you know, you, you think about the Genesis 1 through 3 story, and you feel like you've kind of exhausted it, Right? creation, fall, promise, and then you start to think about it, like, what does it say about this theme, and this theme, and this theme, and all of a sudden, like, it just erupts with meaning that you didn't even see was there before, but death, death, if you remember, is the original punishment for sin, right? Before that, though, in Genesis 2, what does God do to the man in in verse 7? The Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. In him we live and move and have our being, right? Without God breathing into the man, he's simply a corpse, right? He's formed. He's completely formed out of the dust. He's a he's a body, but until God personally comes down and breathes into that body, he's not a living being yet. And uh, if, you, if you think even the significance of that plays in the Genesis story, the other creatures were formed from the dust of the ground, right? The animals were. And if you think about even, uh, I know Ben talked about the forming and filling theme of Genesis 1, right? Think about, if you think about it, I think it happens in three different stages. So stage one is the sky, right, the, the firmament. He does light and darkness and then fills it with the, on day one, and then day four he fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, he creates the sea and dry land, right? And then he puts the fish and the birds. I'm sorry, he doesn't create the sea and dry land, he creates the sky and the waters, Right? And he creates the fish and the birds in day two and day five. And in day six, he creates the land and the animals. But do you see what's happening? We move from outer space to the sky to the land. And then it climaxes with God actually breathing into the ground. Slowly, God gets closer and closer to his creation until he breathes life into it. 
You see how personal it gets when God actually puts life into a person. He's personally involved. He's not distant. He's not just creating. Of course, God's not distant in any of his acts of creation, but the one in which he is most intentionally near is the, the breath of life with the man, right? And the man is told that he must work the garden. He can eat of any tree of the garden, right? God made a billion yes trees and one no tree. He, he said, you can eat of any of these trees except one. This is something about the graciousness of God, does it not? Like, God is not a God of all these don'ts. God's a God of all these do's and one don't in the garden. And what happens if they eat of the tree? They will surely die. They will die. They will cease to live. Right? And Romans 5 makes a big deal of this, that in Adam, death passed to all humanity. But when we see death, it doesn't look exactly like what we had thought, does it? What does death look like in the Genesis story, at least immediately? Think of Genesis 3. We saw their nakedness good. That happens. What else happens? Yeah, there's shame. Yeah, they're kicked out of the land, right? Yeah, that's right. In the immediate context of the narrative, death is associated with exile from the land and exile from God's presence, right? You're kicked out of God's presence and you're kicked out of the land. And look at Genesis 4, when Cain sins... What happens to Cain after he sins? He is also kicked out of the presence of God and kicked out of the land, right? Starting in verse 12. There's kind of like a repeating of the curse that happens, right? When you work the ground, it should no longer yield to you a strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He was not going to have a home. He's kicked out of God's land, and he's kicked out of the presence of God, like his parents. Because look at verse 12. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and sat in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right? So just like his parents, he's kicked out of God's presence. But there's an additional element to it now, because it's not just one man and one woman living in the world. He's also kicked out of God's people, Right? So I, I, think, I think death in the biblical storyline has three elements to it, at least immediately. There's actual death, and we see that starting in chapter 5. Physical death exists. There's a sense of, there's, of spiritual death that is being separated from three things. God's land, God's presence, and God's people. God's land, God's presence, and God's people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I've never been asked that question before. That's interesting. My guess is, and it's an expression of human rebellion against what God has said, right? So God's, God's not giving an explicit prophecy because God can't be wrong. God's simply telling him what his life is going to look like. That's interesting, though. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. It's very similar to the Babel story, though, isn't it? Also, when they're supposed to spread out, spread out over the world and they build a city. That's my best guess, but I haven't, I've never thought about it till right now. So, you do some research and let me know, my friend. There's your biblical theology paper. Yeah, so three things I'm, I'm arguing. God's land, God's presence, and God's people. So let me develop that through the story. But first, before I do, let's consider some elements of or how the Bible views death. Look at Psalm 18, 4 and 5. Death, in the Bible's story, begins to take upon itself anthropomorphic qualities, right? Death isn't just this abstract thing that people find themselves floating into. Death is described actually as an enemy. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. It's actually seen as something of an enemy, something that seeks for people. Jonah says something similar in his prayer in Jonah 2, doesn't he? And there is a sense in which death is an ongoing Physical death is an ongoing consequence of sin. Psalm 90, verse 7, they will not enter my rest. They died in the wilderness. Actual physical death, but, but spiritual death also in that they were not in God's land. Even though they were brought out in the Exodus, they did not experience true life. So that Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, 5, when it describes the relationship between and obeying the commandments and inheriting the promised land, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If you do it, you will live. What does that remind us of in the Bible story? If you do it, you will live. Uh, before the law of Moses. Hey, Eve? Before Eve. Yeah. The tree of life. And if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. Right? It's the opposite. Right? If you eat of the fruit, if you disobey, you will die. So now Moses says, if you obey, you will live. And I think Ezekiel makes a big deal about this, actually. Um, when Ezekiel talks about life and death, especially in chapter 18, he says over and over and over again, if you obey, you will surely live. Versus if you disobey, you will surely die, right? It's, this isn't talking about, we shouldn't read this as eternal life. It doesn't make sense in the context. It's talking about inheriting the promised land. Right? And it's redemptive historical context. It's talking about inheriting the promised land. I think this fits within the theme of God's land, God's presence, and God's people. If you're connected to all of those, you will live. 
Look at, uh, look at Hosea 13, 14. This is, a, this is a fascinating text, especially when you consider how Paul uses it in the New Testament. There's a hint of redemption and the, the enemy of death being conquered only for that hope to be crushed. God is speaking to Israel in their wickedness and talking about how judgment is going to come upon them. And he starts to give hope only for him to then turn around and declare judgment. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. And then he calls out to death. Death, where are your plagues? Bring them on. Bring on the plagues, death. Sheol, where is your sting? Let my people feel it, right? Because compassion is hidden from my eyes. We might have a hard time seeing this initially because of we're so familiar with Paul, but this is a call for judgment against Israel. He wants the sting of death to be felt. He wants the plagues of death to be felt because compassion is hidden from the eyes of God. Judgment will come in the form of death, in the form of plagues, is what Hosea is predicting. Consider also Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, right? It's a description of Israel outside of the promised land. Israel outside the promised land is like a valley of dry bones. Uh, and uh, the dry, God commands Ezekiel to prophesy over the dry bones so that they come together. And then after he prophesies over them, verse 14, I will put my ruach, my spirit, Spirit, ruach means both spirit and breath in Hebrew, right? So it's a little unclear. What is he saying? Is he saying he's going to put his breath in them like Adam? They will live? Is he saying his spirit? Well, well, probably, maybe it's a play on words, but within the context, remember Ezekiel 36 promised the new covenant spirit to live within God's people. I'll put my ruach with you, within you, and you shall live. And, and what is living associated with? I will place you in your own land. Being outside of the land, being in exile, being away from the presence of God, and being away from God's people is death in the biblical storyline. So that if you go into the promised land, it's like you're being resurrected. If you're in exile, going into the promised land again is like resurrection. It is resurrection. You're resurrected and brought back into God's presence and God's people and God's land. So then there are hints in the Bible story that death is going to be overcome. Death is not going to be a permanent reality in God's world. Um, what's the first one you can think of in the Bible story? The first hint that death is going to be overcome. The first. My friend, if we have to wait till we get to Revelation 22, we have a hopeless book. The first, the, first, the first gospel hope comes on the last page of the Bible, my friends. You see, this is, this is a school that seeks not only to grow you in your knowledge of the Bible, but in your humility as well. Right? You don't get this in seminary. Right? 
And there are some people, there, there are some people who need to grow in humility more than others, and there are some people who give opportunities to grow in humility more than others. And A.B. would be one of those, uh, A.B. would fit into both categories. A.B. needs to grow in humility more than others, and he gives opportunity for that more than others. So I'm very grateful to take any chance I can have with A.B. Anyway, Genesis 3, how, where is the hope of resurrection in Genesis 3? Genesis 3.15? I mean, yeah, it's not explicit, though. I mean, we can say Genesis 3.15 in the sense that, you know, the serpent's going to be done away with. But where's the first explicit hope? Yeah. The Spirit of God hovering over the water? Let there be light? It's typologically for sure. Let's say literally, without typological reading, yeah. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, so maybe Exodus. Exodus uh, 3 or Exodus 6. I, I get those two chapters mixed up. Look at the, look at, though, in verse 20 of chapter 3. The man called his wife, what does Eve mean? Eve means life. So he hasn't named his wife yet, right? He's named every other creature. He has not yet named his wife. She has only been called the woman. She gets her name after the fall. And what does he name her? He names her life. They've just been cursed with death, and he names his wife life because she is the mother of all, not the dead, all of the living. There's hope. Adam has confidence that God is going to do something to reverse what happened, and his wife he names life as he's experiencing the curse of death. Yeah. Is there something too in him saying, now lest you be touched from him and take the tree of life in humility that would say God, like I don't want you to live forever in this cursed state. That's exactly right. Leave the garden on seeing your name and death. Yeah, he doesn't want them to have eternal life until they've been redeemed. Because eternal life in a sin cursed world is eternal hell. Right? Who wants to live in this world forever? What we need is a return to Eden. So God graciously withholds the tree of life. But even in chapter 5, right? In the middle of chapter 5, <clears throat> what's the theme of chapter 5? What should hit you hard? Death. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Hopeless, 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 hopeless until verse 24. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. What does it mean? I have no clue. But you know, what does it mean that God took him? I don't know, but I do know this. He didn't experience death. He never died. There's hope for resurrection. There's hope for some kind of being taken out of death's reign and rule. That we see in Eve, that we see in Enoch. And Genesis 3, verse 6, like Brian mentioned. Consider also 2 Kings 2, 11. Elijah is carried up in the whirlwind into heaven. 
Elijah, like Enoch, never died. <laughs> never died. Before his death was carried up in a chariot of fire into heaven. In all of this, there's hope. There's hope for an existence of eternal life. There's hope for escaping death. There's hope for death to not have the final say in the life of God's people. Look also at Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Instead, you make known to me the paths of life. And, and where is that life experienced? In your presence, right? In the presence of God. The presence of God, the people of God, the land of God is what I'm arguing. Or consider Psalm 49, verse 15. <clears throat> God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. I will be brought out of the grave. I will not be captive to death. Or Psalm 73, 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Not death will receive me. You will receive me into glory. And maybe the most explicit, Job 19, 25. My, my, uh, my family and I were talking about this the other day. What, does, <clears throat> what did Job mean by this when he said it? I mean, we, we read it in light of Christ, but it's one of those verses that is so hard to not read in light of Christ. It's, it's really hard to know what Job actually meant in a literal sense. I do know what he means in a typological sense, but oh my goodness, what did Job mean in a literal sense? I really don't know. But this is the most explicit, probably in the whole Old Testament. <clears throat> I know that my Redeemer lives... And at last, he will stand upon the earth. And, in my, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job has this hope that he, after death, he will see God. And not just see God in a spiritual way. He will see God in his flesh. In my flesh I shall see God. He, he, he has this idea of, do you see this? He has this idea of being destroyed. And after he's destroyed, in his flesh seeing God. I don't know how to read that apart from resurrection. Like, we're not just talking about an immaterial, continued existence here. We're talking about dying and coming back to life in your body. And when that happens, he will behold God and not another. Oh, how glorious is that? After death, we will see face to face. Because our Redeemer lives. Because Jesus Christ has conquered death. We have hope in our own resurrection. And we will see God and not another. It's, it's made more explicit through prophecy, right? Um, Ezekiel 37, we already mentioned that. But Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince 
who has charge of you, my people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been and since has never has been since there was a nation till that time. Till that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and, sh- and some to shame and everlasting contempt. A resurrection then, not just of the faithful covenant members, but the unfaithful covenant members. A resurrection of everyone to experience either eternal life or eternal contempt, eternal shame, eternal judgment. That's the backdrop the Old Testament sets for us. And what do we find when Jesus comes? Jesus is the conqueror of death. All of these hopeful expectations for a a living after death, for a being with God after death, and for a a resurrection in physical body is experienced in Christ. So that in 1 Corinthians 15, Hosea is used in in, 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 an ironic way. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he uses it in the opposite way that Hosea meant it. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's not saying, come and bring the judgments. He's saying, there are no judgments left. Death has no power because Christ has been resurrected. This resurrection wins life and resurrection for the whole creation also. Look at Romans 8, starting in verse 18. It's not just something that we experience, but all of creation. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation itself will be restored to its former glory. And I don't want to spend too much time in Ephesians now because we'll talk more about it. But we're going to talk about the presence of God being with God's people and being in God's land. I think Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, sums up all of those very nicely. As we were once alive, we were once the living dead in the land of trespasses and sins, and we're ushered into God's presence, God's land, and joined to God's people. But then look at Revelation 20, 12 through 13. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to the works they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown to the lake of fire. Even these people who are resurrected for eternal judgment. It happens because Christ has conquered death and he's the authority over death. He has the ability to call 
death and Hades themselves, and they listen and obey his words. And then Revelation 21, death will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away for all of us who have trusted in Christ. We experience his resurrection so that, like Job says, in our flesh we will see God. Any questions on that, the theme of death and resurrection? And of course this happens in the presence of God, in the land of God, and with God's people. All three of those are reversed. So the spiritual death and physical death are overcome at the same time. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, there are, I think very simply, Sheol is the place of the dead. It's just the collective place where the righteous and the sinners both go in death. Um, it depends on what you mean by that. So, so some people see a connection between like Sheol and Abraham's bosom. And, uh, like, it was kind of like a holding place for Old Testament saints, and they were taken out of it, and now they are with Christ. They weren't there anymore. Um, I'm less inclined to see those kinds of connections myself. Um, I'm more inclined to, to say that the Old Testament saints had a concept of eternal life that was slowly developing and slowly being revealed. It was slowly being revealed to them. Um, and Sheol, Sheol, I don't think, is equivalent for hell. I think it's simply the place where the dead continued in an immaterial existence. So that when David says things like, my son will not come back to me, but I will go to him. I don't think he's saying, my son is in heaven. He's saying, my son is in the place of the dead, and I will go to the place of the dead as well. So does the place of the dead continue to exist? I don't, we don't use that kind of language, right? Because we have more revelation given to us. Um, but I think, I think Old Testament saints would have probably conceptualized it as we all go to the place of the dead. I don't think they would have thought of it as one place that's pleasant and one place that's not. I don't think they would have thought of it like that yet. Does that answer that question? I think that's something that especially is revealed in the New Testament. Yeah. But it's not easy. It's difficult. Like, how do those ideas relate to one another? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying where they go is different. But if we say it's no longer there, that... Right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying it's no longer there. I'm saying that the way that they thought of it is not something that's been revealed to us. We have more revelation about what happens after a person dies than David did. So when David thinks about death, he thinks about one kind of, from my understanding, I could be very wrong about this. This is the, I mean, I've thought about this. This isn't like a major topic that I've thought about, but I've thought about it for quite a while. I don't think that David has this idea of you die and you either go to the pleasant place or the torment place. He just kind of sees everyone dying and going to one place of the dead. Now, was that, is that because 
that's used to be how things functioned? I don't think so. I think that they just didn't have a, it hadn't been fully revealed to them. There's progressive revelation. So that we know more about what happens when a person dies than David did. Because of the climax of revelation in Jesus Christ. So did people go to a place of torment and a place of comfort in an intermediate state before Christ? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, but how they conceptualized it or how they understood it was different and not complete. Yeah, I think they go to the same place, yeah. Yeah, there's not, there's not like a special holding place that people went to until Christ died. And then once Christ died, his blood is applied to them and now they're taken out of Abraham's bosom. I mean, it's quite a lot to, dispensationalists do do this, you're right. Um, it's quite a lot to say that based upon a parable, um, to, to base an entire theology of the afterlife on a parable, when that's clearly not the point of the text. Um, the point of the text is not what happens after a person dies. Good. Any other questions? We're going to have another activity now then. Okay. So you just did a wedding. You just did a, a wedding. Uh, and guys, this is just, this is, you're in a city where people just don't show up, right? There's just no reliable pastors in this. I'm not saying audits about it. I'm just saying whatever city you live in, there's no reliable pastors. They just don't show up for the big points in people's life. Now, this is something amazing, right? That in pastoral ministry, you are with people in the most emotional most transitional points of their lives, right? Marriage and death being the big ones. And everything in between, you walk through it with them, right? And they need to feel your presence because your presence mediates to them the presence of Christ. And your care mediates them the care of Christ. Your affection mediates them the affection of Christ. And they know, they, when, they, when they think about how does Christ feel about this, they look at how you, how you interact with them. So are they going to see like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus weeps. He doesn't weep because he knows Lazarus is dead forever. He weeps out of compassion and sympathy for the people with him. He, he knows he's about to perform the miracle. <laughs> and yet he still weeps with them. And he knows in 10 minutes he, Lazarus is going to resurrect again. That's the compassion of Jesus Christ for people, <clears throat> and we need to model that. Yeah, do you have a question, Mohammed? Marriage by phone? Yes. Okay. How do they kiss the bride? You're talking about because of the coronavirus, or just that's what it always is? Oh, secu- oh, that makes sense. I see what you're saying. I don't have any questions, no. That's fascinating, though. Is that bad? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I, I think ideally, okay, ide- and we're going to talk about covenants next. That's exactly where we're going next. Covenants are always done publicly. <coughs> covenants are always done publicly unless they can't be. So like David and Jonathan is an example of a covenant that can't be done publicly, right? Because David's probably going to die. But other than that, Covenants are always created in a public nature, and so I think it's best, if possible, to have weddings in public. However, if you're in a situation like David and Jonathan, where they make a covenant with one another to love one another, um, but they can't do it publicly for fear of death, then I think you've got to do the best you can, right? That's why baptism should be public. 
Baptism shouldn't be you by yourself. Whatever. In your bathtub with your kid. It should be done in front of the church because covenants are done publicly. Anyway, it's a good question. But I think, uh, I think there's, there's norms, things we should strive for, but when we can't do it, we do the best we can. Right? Uh, so, you're in a town, same town, okay? Same pastor is supposed to show up. Right? This is actually, this is like the, the same, let's say it's the same week. You have a, a funeral and a wedding. And the pastor, man, this guy is just unreliable. And, and Pastor Brian, you're the only person here who has studied the Bible, and we need you to say something. And by the way, just like the wedding, the funeral starts in five minutes. Just like the wedding. Because we like to let you know five minutes ahead of time. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. Think about your biblical theology of death. Okay. And think about how that would help you prepare in five minutes for, to say something at a funeral. And then when, you, when we do get back together, I'll, I'll give you kind of instructions on how to say it as well. But yeah, you have five minutes. I'll let you know when the time's up. Funeral's starting in five minutes, guys. Everyone's here. You've got to say something. Okay? Use your biblical theology of death and resurrection and life to come up with something. That's gospel-centered, Christ-centered. You've got five minutes. Good luck. Okay, five minutes. Pencils down. You can't write anything else. Let's talk a bit before we separate into groups, which we're going to. <clears throat> Let's talk a bit about tone. Okay. Tone. Tone. Um, you can say all the right things in situations like this, but if you feel awkward to people, they're not going to feel the love and the care that they need to feel in a moment like this. So appropriate tone. <clears throat> we looked at Jesus and Lazarus already, right? Jesus who wept with the sister of Lazarus. Another interesting text is First uh, Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4.13, I think, is one of the most helpful verses for helping believers think through death and how to process death. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Does he say he doesn't want them to grieve? No. He says we don't want you to grieve like the people who don't have hope. There's a Christian way to grieve, and there's a non-Christian way to grieve, right? And Christians grieve with hope. And so, sometimes people feel guilty grieving. Sometimes people feel like they don't know what to feel. And texts like this are very, very helpful, either for people who don't know what to feel, or for people who are just overwhelmed by their feelings, right? But in both of these, we can come alongside people and show the same compassion of Christ, and show the, show the same compassion that Christ shows, but also identify for people that there's such thing as Christian grieving, and help them know what that looks like and feels like. Here's the temptation is a lot of times at funerals to feel like you're either, uh, here's the first question, this is the question I ask them, 
ask you guys, who are we talking to at funerals? Who are we talking to? The living. The living. All right. It's obvious, right? It's obvious. We're not talking to the dead. We're talking to the living. It's, it's obvious. It makes you laugh. But then when you think about it, you start to realize, oh, wait, my, I'm talking to people who are still alive and who love this person. Your job is not to be the decider if they were, to be the public decider, public declaration of their justification. Your job is not to stand there and say they were a believer, they were not a believer. That is not your job, no matter how confident you are of their faith. Your job is to talk to the people who are listening to you, to comfort them, to share the gospel with them, and to share that there's hope in Christ. Now, how you come to that is different depending on if the person was clearly a believer or not. <clears throat> so if they're clearly a believer, you can say things like, you can say it in like a way that honors them, right? I'm going to share something now that is important for you to know, but I want to share it now because that was important for this person. This was important for them, and let me share Share kind of as something that was important to them, right? So in a, in a sense, you're doing two things at once. You're both honoring the person who died and drawing attention to them, but you're also sharing the gospel. And if, and if you're unconfident, you're unsure if they're a believer or not, your job is not to stand there and say, I don't want you to end up like them. No. You do that, you do all kinds of damage. Your job is to say, what gives us com comfort and hope in the face of the worst of realities, which is death? Actually, the Bible calls death our enemy. Right? And you can draw, because what people are looking for is hope in that situation. And that's, if you're unsure, what you don't want to do is give people false confidence in someone's eternal destination. But what you do want to do is talk to them where they're at, which is grieving, confusion, loss, hurt, pain. And either way, you, you kind of give the same message, which is the hope that the gospel gives, but how you get there might be different. Does that make sense? So this, this group kind of figured that out after several minutes into it. I just want to say for the, for the benefit of this group also, because I don't want you to fall into that temptation. That's a, that's a pretty common temptation is, <clears throat> shoot, I need to stand up and be the, their judge. <laughs> you don't. You're not talking to them. You're talking to the people in front of you. Let's add a little bit of biblical theology, though. Let's add a little bit of biblical theology to this. Let's just talk with, within your group here. What... What was said, biblical theology-wise, give us some of the story of the Bible to supplement the need for us to come to Christ and repent. You talked about kind of what Brian said, that death isn't right. Yeah, breath isn't right. So we grieve, I mean, it ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we grieve an evil that, that God hates himself. Good. Mikey, what's something you guys said? Good. And I love you saying he's, he's in the arms of Jesus. I think you said that. That's excellent, my friend. That gives hope like none other. It truly does.
It's in the arms of Jesus. I love that. Good.